trauma decontextualize in a person looks like personality. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. For any new listeners, I am Andrea. I am the queen of the shit show. You should be very, very glad that I don't drink anymore and am a broken man picker syndrome survivor. Today, we are diving deep with Lucy again, my former uh, cult-like boarding school classmate. If you have not listened to that episode, you need to go back. It is a damn gem. So we're going to be hearing the rest of Lucy's story. You're also going to get to hear uh, a lot of Lucy's bops. So I bring this up in the conversation with her. But in early sobriety, it appeared based off um, Facebook and YouTube that uh, Lucy was quite the shit show. And she was putting out some highly, highly entertaining content that me and my friend would sit around for hours and watch her shit. So you're going to get to hear some of that shit. But first, uh, a few things. First, I wanted to uh, read to y'all a a message that I got from a listener uh, because I think it's some good food for thought. So she said, Um, I'm currently doing healing work for my complex PTSD and also going to AA. I feel like some of the ideals contradict, and I'm not sure how to implement which practices. Trauma work equals focusing on my needs and not people-pleasing. AA work equals I have been selfish and need to focus on what I can do for others. Do you have any thoughts about this? Well, indeed I do. Uh... A big component of any 12-step program is being of service to others. And I think it's so, so, so important. And I think the ones that stick around, the people that stay sober, are the ones who do service work. And it definitely was a huge part of my you know, early sobriety, the first five or so years. And uh, I was taught in early sobriety that if somebody asks you to be of service and you are able to do it, you say yes regardless of whether or not you want to do it. But this can get a little dicey for us adult children because we're people pleasers. We are people who have a hard time saying no. We are people who tend to put the needs of others above our own. We are people who tend to do shit for people that they really should be doing for themselves. But to take this uh, even a step further, you know, our people pleasing can actually be a, a trauma response. This is what we call fawning. There's flight, fight, freeze, and fawning. And this coin was termed by Pete Walker, and he talks about it a bunch in uh, complex PTSD from surviving to thriving. But he says, Fawn types seek safety by merging with the wishes, needs, and demands of others. They act as if they believe that the price of admission to any relationship is the forfeiture of all their needs, rights, preferences, and boundaries. The disenfranchisement of the fawn type begins in early childhood. She learns early that a modicum of safety and attachment can be gained by becoming the helpful and compliant servant of her exploitive parents. 
So as adult children, we need to be mindful of this. Um, when people are asking us to to be of service in some way, you know, what are the underlying intentions? Am I saying yes solely because I want this person to like me? Or am I saying yes solely because I'm afraid of their reaction if I say no? Am I putting the needs of others above my own in a detrimental way? Am I taking on the responsibility of someone who should really be doing this themselves? So it's just really getting clear on on what the underlying motives and intentions are. And I think this is like the opportunity, the perfect time where we reach out to somebody in our healing community or a sponsor or a therapist to try to to suss this stuff out. So we had our first uh, workshop, adult child workshop this past weekend. And the next one will be on May 18th, Wednesday, May 18th at 8.15 Eastern, 5.15 Pacific. It's going to be with me and Adam Moroskis, Mr. Fixer Picker. And the workshop is called, Why Do I Act This Way in Relationships? And we're going to be diving deep into insecure attachment styles, why attachment is so important in relationships, and how to stop sabotaging your relationships. So go check out the link in the bio for tickets. This will be limited capacity. I anticipate that it'll sell out. So go buy that shit. And you can also go buy the replay. For anyone who bought the replay for Sunday's um, workshop, I will get that to you in the next few days. And lastly, join the damn Patreon. This is where I host weekly Zoom support groups. This is your way of saying thanks, Andrea, for all that you do. Here's five bucks a month. Here's $1.25 a week. I know that you have $1.25 a week to spare, okay? Uh, You can also support me by following me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And of course, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Police. Stuck in traffic, I'm halfway across the Atlas. Take you and all your baggage, anything that gets you here the fastest. I've tried, I can't be patient. I see no point in waiting. Get to me, get to me, baby. What's the quickest transportation? Do you need a boat or a plane or a limousine? I'll be in the Bay to LA to the Philippines. Do you need a blimp or a jet or a rocket ship? It's an honest. Say goodbye your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. How much was your daily habit? Um, it would fluctuate, you know. Um, it was I was doing a lot, you know. Me and this boyfriend were doing a lot together, um, and I was paying for all of it, you know, with um my with the strip club and with um escorting. Did you? Would you ever go into withdrawal? Yeah, I mean, I like. I got I me and my boyfriend went to Vegas. We thought like we I could make a bunch of money there working the casinos, you know. And I did the first couple nights. I did. And then like the third day I got caught by like a decoy cop. And I'd only been doing heroin like six months, maybe, and had never experienced true sickness. We always had the heroin, you know. 
And yeah, I went to jail and I experienced dope sickness, true dope sickness for the first time. And Vegas has this rule where if you don't have a Nevada ID, then there's a 48 hour hold on you, even if you bail out. And no one told me that. So my boyfriend posted my bail and I keep, I'm like, I'll be out within 12 hours. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And someone finally tells me like 24 hours in, like, no, if you don't have a Nevada ID, you're going to be here for 48 hours, no matter what. Were you charged with, was it for prostitution or for possession? I was charged for prostitution. No, I don't think I had anything on me. Had you ever been arrested before? Yeah, I had a previous prostitution case. And then I was given a stay away from Craigslist for my first (laughs) case. Yeah. And even though I I never even used Craigslist, they just sort of, it was like this massive sting and all the girls were issued like X amount of community service and a stay away from Craigslist. So then, um, it's so funny. It's like all the dealers here, like they get a stay away order to the tenderloin and then you got a, a stay away order to the Craigslist. That's hilarious. Yeah, I would get like pulled over for like running a red light or something. And the cop would like run my name and be like, you have a stay away from Craigslist. Yeah. He'll be like, ma'am, ma'am, I need you to pull over. I, I need to uh, open up your phone to make yeah. sure that you have not been on the Craigslist website. Craigslist app on your phone. <laughs> um, okay. So you, you know, was it just life as usual, like for the next just several years? Yeah. I mean, it was like years of heroin. Did you have a life? I mean, did you have friends? Did you do fun things? I mean, I was like pursuing my music career, you know, that's when I was Snow White and um, I put out an album. Um, (laughs) I'm still waiting on that shit. I'm so, especially the, I need, um, just get to me. That's the best. I'll find the I'll find the link. You can post like when you post this, my link to my my YouTube channel now and my Snow White channel. Yeah, you guys will get a, a lot of entertainment out of my Snow White Snow stuff. Who to be your private stripper? Just for you. Tonight you're gonna fall in love with a stripper. All in your ear, dirty words, I'm a whisper. I told her this the other day, me and my friend in early sobriety, we, me and my friend that I got sober with, we would sit around and watch, um, Lucy's music videos. (laughs) They were so good. Yeah. But I was working with some really big names, like locally. Then all of a sudden you had some sort of like weird beef with like this other female rapper. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. Krayshawn. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you have a song about her or something? Yeah, I put out a diss track. It was mostly just um, because she was really big. She was like a white girl from Berkeley that was like blowing up. So I knew a diss track would sort of get me like some traction. I didn't really have that much of a problem. Well, I didn't like that she her her group was called like the white girl mob because the word mob has some really like weird like historical connotations that made me uncomfortable. And one there was three of them in the group, and one of them said the n word a lot. You know, so yeah, I was, um, I didn't have any personal beef with her. 
The, that was fabulous too. Highly entertaining. Oh, that music video. Yeah, that's somewhere too. That wasn't on my channel, but it's still up. I'll have to find that too. But I was I was working with some really big names. And I really um I had some producers behind me, one drop Scott, who was like locally really, really big and worked with all the local, you know, rappers. Um, all the Bay Area names that you would think of when you think of Bay Area hip hop, you know, Too Short, E-40, Three Times Crazy. Um, I, I really could have done something. It, things were starting to sort of pick up for Snow White. Um, but this boyfriend that I had. Was he the guy in the car? Like, do you remember the one like where you're like, yeah. like in the car smoking the blunt? Yeah. And there's heroin on that dollar bill. I'm in the car and I'm talking in my like high voice voice i'm like eh, like my heroin voice you know so good you know that's Dude. the thing we have to be able to like embrace this is what i'm all about on the show yeah. is embracing this shit it's it's so good <laughs> yeah yeah and and um it's funny because i found when my boyfriend and me first started dating he found that channel and he was like looking at it and that specific rap that you're talking about i was reading the comments and someone goes this woman is a heroin addict. Jesus, help her or something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Jesus. Help her, Jesus. That's so funny. Yeah, no, those were like the, the best ever. I'm glad that you're able to laugh about it because I, you know, <laughs> I'm not making fun of you. I hope you know that. Wasn't it like Lucille? Didn't you have like Lucille in it or something? Oh, yeah. That was my other name, Lucille 8-Ball. Lucille 8-Ball. Yeah. So when you when you became Lucille Eight Ball, did you retire the Snow White or you kept both? <laughs> yeah, no, that was just sort of my other, you know, like Eminem Slim Shady. That was sort of my just other name. <laughs> it was your Slim Shady to your Eminem. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you're working with some um, big names. Yeah, but the boyfriend that I was with at the time, um, at first he was super supportive and he loved that I rapped and sang and made music and stuff but um eventually he his jealousy got really bad and the the emotional abuse got really bad and i was in the studio one night and he like showed up and said i was sucking everyone's dicks and um said he was gonna shoot up the whole studio and like um you know he would do stuff like that to the point where they just didn't want to work with me anymore they were like you're a shit show your boyfriend is a psycho and and yeah and i sort of lost um lost that connection and got deeper into heroin. And when you're so unhappy, you don't have the same inspiration. You know, we get inspiration from our pain, but not while we're in the pain. It's yep, part yep. of the, the healing that comes after when we have the, the perspective. And I was just in so much pain. So I wasn't writing as much and I just wasn't as inspired and I wasn't welcome in a lot of the studios. And yeah, my life was just um, go to the strip club, make money come home do heroin for many years when did you do, when did you first try to get sober um so my family had like an intervention for me um i was gonna ask that what was the relationship like with your parents like in this time period and your sister like did they know um, what was going on with you yeah yeah they did and they didn't they didn't know what to do you know and i showed up and um there was an intervention and um as soon as i realized what it was i was like i'm out of here 
When was this? How old were you? Probably, I don't know, 24, 25, maybe. I'd only been doing heroin for like a year or two. Um, but I was like, I'm out of here, you know? And I think most people, when they have an intervention, they're financially very distressed. They probably, a lot of them live with their parents. A lot of them are dependent on their parents or paying for their addiction a lot of times. Um, and so the threat is I will cut you off. I will kick you out if you don't go to rehab. That is very often the threat. I didn't have that. So I was like, I'm out of here and moved to Reno with this boyfriend and, um, same guy or a different one. Yeah. Same guy. I was with this guy for a very long time. So, but when I was in the Bay area, I would go visit my mom. I would go visit my sister. You know, I still had the connection, but then it was just me and him in Reno alone in a hotel or in a motel. And I was completely isolated and the abuse got worse and worse and worse because there was no, okay, we're arguing. I'm going to my mom's house, you know? Um, how does one make the decision to uh, move to a motel in Reno? How did that <laughs> it's cheap in Reno? I knew there were strip clubs I could work at. I knew there was casinos. Um, it was just kind of like, well, let's get out of here. So, and it was cl- a lot closer than Vegas. So we just drove there. Um, was he, um, was he physically abusive? He was not often, but there was physical abuse. Um, he was so attached to me and um, and resented me for the fact that he relied on me financially, yet continued to. And he was so afraid to lose me that um, he would just torture me. Did he work at all? No, he did nothing. And he resented the fact that I was an escort and that I slept with other men. He hated it. I mean, he like wouldn't be sexual with me on days that I worked, which is most days. So there was a lot of sexual neglect. Yeah. One night he just was torturing me and emotionally. I don't even remember what he was saying, but everything I did was wrong. You know, he was mad at me for something dumb. He was just laying it on me. And I called my mom and I said, "Okay, I'll go to treatment. And she booked the flights. She booked the treatment. She drove in the middle of the night from Berkeley to Reno and an hour, which is like a four, four and a half hour drive an hour before she got there. I called her because things had settled down with me and my boyfriend Yeah, and said, don't come, don't come. Yeah. And she said, Lucy, I'm not doing this anymore. Like this is it either go or like, that's it. So I said, okay, but will you like pay for my boyfriend to go to treatment too? Cause then he started freaking out and was like, mm. Oh, I don't want to get left behind, you know? So I went to treatment and my mom was paying for him to do some like methadone wean program, like outpatient. And I was writing letters to him and we were talking and my mom was paying for his rental car. She was just doing whatever she just, and, and I thought that I was going to come home to like a heroin free life and that that's what we had both wanted. And yeah. So then I got home and me and him are like on the BART train and he, he stops on this. We stop at 66. We're not supposed to get off there. He looks at me and he says, I got to make a stop. And I already knew that was where like the heroin plug was. And I just remember being like, 
what the fuck? Like, I thought we both got off of this. And I enrolled in an outpatient when I got home. I wanted to be sober. Like, if I had just stopped then, I could have done it. It didn't have its claws in me in the same way. But what I was living in an apartment, I was going to this outpatient and everybody at the outpatient was on disability. They were getting time off from work. They were getting checks. I was going to this outpatient eight hours a day, going to the strip club all night, coming home to my boyfriend who was snorting heroin. And I kept it up for like a few months um, before. And, and he was just waiting with the plate of heroin, just just waiting for the, the moment that I was ready. You know, he never protected me from it or supported me in sobriety. And pretty soon I was back on it. I was faking my drug tests because my relate, as long as I was in this outpatient and it was like once a week at that time, you know, like I had gotten to that phase where I was just going once a week. As long as I was there and passing my drug tests, my parents would talk to me. My mom would give me money if I needed it. I had her help. I had her support. She was paying for things like my phone bill and just trying to support me. And my mom encouraged me to uh, enroll in, to, to go to college. She basically filled out all the paperwork for me. Like she, my mom just dragged me to college. So she really wanted me to go to Evergreen. She was like, I've heard about this school in Washington. And it's supposed to be an amazing school. And I was like, no, you know, I just wanted to kind of stay in the Bay area where I was comfortable. And she said, well, I'm paying for everything. So just come visit it. So we drove out to Washington and, um, I had like a Suboxone prescription from this outpatient. So like when we do things like that, I just take my Suboxone. So, you know, I got on my Suboxone somewhere on the drive or whenever it was, had been like the 12 hours, you know, that I was detoxing and I could take it. We spent a week in Washington. I visited Evergreen. I, I loved it. So my mom bought, got me an apartment for me and my dog. And um, she said, I like, she wanted to do anything to keep me out of the sex industry, you know? And so she said, if you're in school, I will give you an allowance. Um, I will pay for your apartment. And, um, and she thought I was sober and she had thought that me and my boyfriend had broken up. I was sort of like lying to her about it. And she said, as long as you don't bring this guy, she said, go out to Washington, start over, get away from this man for real. And I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to. Um, so yeah. And I remember she, like we, when it was time for school to start, she took me to my apartment. She took me to Ikea. She bought me tons of furniture. She bought me a used car and I dropped her off at the airport and I just started crying. And she was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I feel like I don't deserve this because I didn't. I knew that I was, I was on my Suboxone because we were on our little trip, but, and I knew I was going to call that guy, Marvin. I knew Marvin was going to come back. I knew I didn't deserve it. And I was able to not hit rock bottom with drugs for so long because I was financially taken care of. And I was still turning tricks for like the extra drug money, but I had <laughs> everything that I needed. And so I was able to do really well in school too. What were you studying? Theater. I mean, I did not go to Evergreen thinking that I would, but, um, I like took one theater class and I was like a child actor. Mm -hmm. um, I was involved in like the Shakespeare, San Francisco Shakespeare company when they would need like child performers and stuff. And I signed up for this acting class and 
I remembered who Lucy was before drugs and abuse. And, and I got really close to my professor and she really believed in me. And I told her that I was on heroin and she was like, just so supportive of me. She knew that you were actively on heroin. Yeah. Yeah. She knew. Um, she, she was really an amazing woman. And she knew that the reason that I was such a good actor was because of my pain, you know? So, so yeah, I, I did theater and I got involved in local theater. I uh, did some like regional theater. And this is all on heroin, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, if you, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, so our first needs are like food, water, shelter, yeah. and then next comes um, safety and security and like steady employment. And then comes connection, self-esteem. Um, and then the, the last one is self-actualization. Mm-hmm. So because I had food, water, shelter, safety, security, you know, I, I was able to self-actualize even in my addiction at, to some extent. And I loved college because that's where I had my connection and my escape from the abuse. I would, I was, I would go home and just be abused, you know, and, and like everyone just thought I was this strong woman and this powerful actor. Nobody knew that I was being physically and emotionally abused and using heroin. Like nobody knew. Here's the thing. It wasn't the drugs that was going to kill me. It was the codependency. The codependency was the most dangerous addiction that I've had. What I realized for me is alcoholism was a symptom of my underlying trauma, you know? That's really like the core. In my, my boyfriend is Native American. In his culture, they call it a soul wound. It is the soul wound. You know, something that my professor says all the time is, to whom does the symptom belong? You know, because these symptoms that I was showing of choosing these emotionally unavailable men, this, the symptom belongs to a much larger family narrative of these emotionally unavailable fathers raising these daughters who then grow up to love emotionally unavailable men who then have children with them and raise more children that love emotionally unavailable men. And so, you know, that's something that I've really been sort of unpacking since I got sober is, is this story that I inherited and we kind of inherit these scripts and from our family systems. And then we just walk around casting the same, the the same characters, different people to play the same characters over and over again. And that's what I did for a really long time. Okay. You graduate. Yeah. I graduated, started working for this children's theater troupe. Um, I got really close to the woman that was running it. It's crazy. I was like doing heroin in the bathroom and then in the dressing room. And then I'd come out, get the kids in their costumes, send them on stage. Like, and then I started writing my own musicals for children. And so me and Nancy, Nancy was the woman that run stage struck. Were you also still escorting at this point in time too? Yes. <laughs> you were a heroin addict, prostitute, writing pl- plays for children. Writing children's musicals. That's epic. Put that in your bio. That needs to be in your bio on your YouTube or in your Instagram. <laughs> Once was a heroin, uh, a heroin addict prostitute who wrote plays for kids. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty confident you're the only one out there. 
I am one of a kind. (laughs) But um, so me and Nancy wrote this huge production. You know, the the other ones that we were writing were just like Mother's Day shows and just little ones. We wrote this huge two act play. I wrote like 24 songs. I wrote the score. Um, Then me and Nancy wrote the script together. We workshopped it for three months. We cast all these kids. It was like 30 kids. It was like our masterpiece. And um, three days before, Nancy was old. She was like 70 something. Three days before opening night of our like masterpiece, Nancy had a stroke and died on stage. What? Yeah. In front of 30 children in a dress rehearsal. You were there? Yeah. So now the kids were left with the the prostitute heroin addict. (laughs) Thanks, Andrea. (laughs) so let's just pause here though because here you have somebody that has been has seen you who sees you right who sees you for who you are that values you that was a healthy relationship in your life and this person fucking drops dead in an instant yeah like talk about abandonment yeah it There was no question that the show had to go on. Everyone knew Nancy. She was a Broadway actress at like 17, 18. Um, Like everyone knew what what she would want. And the whole community came out. It it was actually great marketing for the show. (laughs) We sold out every night. Um, And yeah, and I had to tell the kids like Nancy died. You know, I like had this whole spiel planned out and I'm like, telling them what happened and there's her brain was bleeding and all this and that. And I'm like, any questions? And the little five-year-old, the youngest one in our show goes, is Nancy going to die? And I'm like, yeah, she is dead. <laughs> like, like she's dead. Kid. Are you late to the party? <laughs> <laughs> you late to the party kid? <laughs> yeah. I think if you ever write a, me- a memoir, you should call it Nancy and the prostitute heroin addict. It would actually make it's a really good premise for like an HBO sitcom or series or something. That would actually be a pretty yeah. cool idea. But then after the show was over, that was my connection. That was my community, you know. And so it was just me and heroin and Marvin again. It was really, really, really hard. And and I'm sure there was no grieving going on from that. Yeah, I didn't. I I mean. I mean, when people say like, oh, drugs make you not feel, I don't think that's true. I was in pain. I was still feeling. Yes. But you have this way to self-soothe instead of doing something healthy like process or, uh, you know, so yeah, you just go to your number one way to self-soothe instead of actually doing the hard work. Yeah. And then basically I got really addicted to Xanax um, and something started happening to me. I was telling you about when we talked like to my nervous system where like, if I would take too many pills with the heroin, I would start getting this feeling that there was like lightning inside my body, but it would just, and I'd be like, Oh fuck. I must've took too much Xanax. Got to be more careful next time. And then it would go away after like a few hours. I'd like shake for a few hours and, and then it would go away. And then one night I took too much Xanax and it happened. And I'm like, oh, fuck, there's lightning inside my body. And I'm shaking and shaking and running around the house. It's like it was like there was this electric current inside of me. And I was like, oh, well, it'll be gone soon. Tonight's going to suck. 
And then it just never went away. And I spent like two months running around in circles, shaking. And I, I eventually I would like pass out for a couple hours, but it's like, there was all this adrenaline inside me that then I would wake up and I would just get up and start running around in circles. And I would just walk the dogs around in circles. I would just walk for hours. And like, I kept going to the emergency room and they thought I was having some sort of like sensory, like hallucinations from like too much, too many drugs and stuff. Finally, a nurse, the nurse practitioner at one of the visits that I went, she said, I think you need to detox. And I was like, no, it can't be that. I said, this happens to me all the time and it goes away. Like it, it cannot be that. That was the one thing that I was never going to stop doing. I was going to do heroin for the rest of my life. And I said, but what if it doesn't work? What if I go through all this pain of detoxing and this is still happening to me? And she said, but what if it does work? And she looked at me and she said, Lucy, you're going to get through this. And I was like, okay. So I decided to just test it out. I'm like, I go home. I'm like, let's get into withdrawal and see. And once I hit like eight, nine hours where you like start feeling with the withdrawal, I sat down and I was still, and I said, okay, I need to go detox. But the whole plan was to go detox, get this out of my system, come home and keep doing heroin. That was the whole plan. I, me and heroin were in love and I had a really rough time at treatment. I was having all these neurological issues. They had me on like Parkinson's medication and stuff. Cause I was twitching and shaking and kicking and the like staff kept saying to me like, Oh yeah, this is just your, this is just your withdrawals. This is just pause. Oh, this is just anxiety. And I'm like, no, like there's literally lightning inside my body, but it lessened and lessened the longer that I detoxed. And by like week two, I still wasn't sleeping, but I didn't even care because I could lay down in my bed. And I was so grateful for that. And slowly sleep came. Um, but what happened was once the lightning left my body, I got all these like tingles in my feet and my hands and which now I know I have, um, drug induced neuropathy and that, um, whatever happened to my nervous system did a lot of damage to it. I could not afford to be like hopeless because things were so bad. And so I just knew, I said, there's this law of physics, the equal and opposite reaction. And as much as I am suffering now, there is, there will be an equal and opposite reaction. And there's that much beauty coming my way. And I just have to hang on and I'm going to survive this. And I, I'm usually somewhat of a cynic, but this strength came, came out of me and I learned what I was made of. And, you know, I would, this, the staff was so great. They would sit up with me while I shook and kicked some nights, but the shaking and kicking was nothing. I mean, at least I could sit down. And I slowly got, got better, but I told everyone, like, I don't want to be sober. My life was fine the way that it was. And I'm just going to get through this and I'm not going to be sober. And I could not wait. And it's crazy. So I left some heroin in my car. And as soon as I finished the 30 days and the five day detox, I was finally sleeping. I was finally still, I got in my car, I hit the heroin. And all the lightning came back, all of it in an instant. And at that moment, I said, okay, it's over for me. 
it's over. And I, sh- and I was messed up for like three days, um, shaking and, and kicking and stuff. And then it started to subside. And I said, okay, time to build a new life. And that was when? That was about 20 months ago, 19 months ago. So I enrolled in this outpatient called Royal Life Centers. And I got there and they had a recording studio as part of their program called Sober Studios. And once a week, we got to go into the recording studio for three hours, write something that had to be recovery based or like mental health based. And we would record and then they would mix it and master it and they would send it to us. And I became like, most of them were like rappers or people who wanted to rap. And so I would write all the hooks, you know, and um, I like sober studios, like saved my life. And um, I was there for months. And by that time I had graduated to like the once a week thing. And so for my one group, I picked Sober Studios and I went there once a week. I recorded my album Strength, um, which is on iTunes and Apple Music. If you look up Lucy Turchin, I recorded that whole thing at Sober Studios. Um, and one day, there, like a lot of the people there weren't very good rappers, you know. And one day I came in there and there was this new guy and he said, hi, I'm Blake. And he's playing the piano. He's playing the guitar. He was spitting bars and I was like, finally, another musician, like, let's do this. And um, me and Blake fell madly in love just instantly. And, and that's what I was talking about with like, you find your identity and then you find intimacy. And like, I was attracted to abusive men for so many years, you know, and I hit rock bottom with that too. And it got to a point where like that kind of behavior disgusted me and I wasn't attracted to it anymore. I was done. And me and Blake, like we just fell madly in love. We couldn't keep our hands off of each other. He was in the intensive program at the time. Um, and we kept getting in trouble for PDA. It got brought up in the, the staff meeting. What are we going to do about Lucy and Blake? They will not stop touching each other. And we kept getting in trouble. And then after like a week, the director of the program told the staff, just let it go. There is no stopping those two. We were writing all these songs. We come in every single day to like the groups, like one of the therapists, the counselors told us we were codependent. So we went home that night. We wrote a song called Codependency, and it goes, What's wrong with the little codependency? I don't care what people say. These aren't my normal tendencies. I got your back to bend on me. What's wrong with the little codependency? And we go in the next day and we go, hey, Crystal, we took your note and we wrote a song about it and we sang it to her. And she was like, oh, my God. Like, she was so impressed that we took what she said. We processed it. We wrote a song and we recorded a whole album. We yeah. And I don't want to, like, advocate for, like, relationships during early recovery that we are sort of like the exception that proves the rule. I, I yes. And I, I, I really hope that that is the case. You know, yeah, it seems good, but at the same time, who the fuck knows? <laughs> good man. Just because this has been your pattern, yeah, 
you know, of codependent relationships, do you, do you feel autonomous? Is your life, your relationship? No, not at all. I have a beautiful life now. I do. Like I, I do have, I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting my master's degree. You know, I have friends. I have, I have a sober life. I am of service. I was working at a treatment center for a while. Um, you know, like, we have to make meaning out of our experiences. We are creatures that need that. That is part of the healing. And when AA talks about being of service as if it's the selfless act, like what they really mean is like, we have, we are of service for ourselves because it gives us meaning, you know? And um, so, yes, yes, this is, this, this has been my pattern. Um, When me and Blake first started dating and I told him about everything that had happened with my nervous system and, with Marvin and everything. And he looked at me and he said, it makes me so sad how much you've been through. And he said, not only am I going to love you because I'm in love with you, but I'm going to love you extra hard to make up for all your suffering. I mean, everybody just knew from the moment we met that we were like made for each other. But um, yeah, I mean, we have a really beautiful life together. And something that I've learned is that, and and this is something my one of my professors says too, the wounds that were created within the context of relationship can only be healed within the context of relationship, you know, and, and this, this pattern of these absent fathers and these emotionally unavailable men, you know, like it's, it stops here for me. And I think for a lot of people, you know, I think that I'm like a high advocate of a big advocate of, you know, of being single for a period of time. Like I, there's, there's work that we need to do in therapy. Yeah. We work on ourselves, And then we get to a certain point where we're now ready to start dating. But then that also too is another round of healing. Like there's, mm-hmm. the, there's the work we need to do individually. Yeah. And then there's the work that we have to do in relationship. No, you know what I mean? No. And I, I heard that in your podcast that you took a year to be single and it, it is important to, to find our identity. Um, I'm a big harm reduction advocate, you know? And so from, from that lens, you could kind of look at it like, well, I'm not being emotionally abused. You know what I mean? And I'm this super codependent person. And so now I have somebody that, that knows that and honors me and knows how to work with my um, because I'm, I'm an anxious attacher. That is my attachment style. I don't know if you, have you ever covered attachment styles and oh, yeah, all the time. So, so from the harm reduction angle, it's like, I, I suck at being alone. That's bullshit. Lucy though, harm reduction, like that is selling yourself short. And I'm not saying that this guy is, but that's what the, this isn't harm reduction. That's, that's selling yourself short. That's rooted in the belief that you are broken and you have to just take whoever's willing to deal with you, like setting the bar, like, oh, he's not physically or, you no, know, he's so much more than that, though. Yeah, no. You know, that thought pattern is, you know, rooted in this is the best I can get. Well, I did do some dating when I got out of rehab and, um, you know, besides him and I, you know, I didn't just fall in love with like the first person like that I that was willing to love me. I wouldn't say it like that, but yeah, something that I learned was like kindness is the bare minimum of what I deserve. Like that shouldn't even be on the list. That's a given. And I wanted someone that was, I wanted someone that was my equal emotionally, spiritually, just in every way, my equal intellectually. Um, 
I hope that you guys live happily ever after. He uh, seems no. wonderful. And I hope that one day you get married and I can go to yeah. your uh, wedding and 30 years from now, you're, you know, you're going to be the success story. I, I really hope that happens, but it's just like food for thought, right? It's yeah. just things we have to be mindful of as well. You're amazing. I, I hope you know that. I just want to acknowledge everything that you just shared you know, like your truth, your vulnerability, like you are, you're an amazing person uh, and you have so many amazing qualities and you're special. You know, there's, there's something special about you and you clearly have been given a huge, huge, huge fucking gift from the universe. You know, I also just want to say too, is it's, it's, it's going to be a long road. There is like so much fucking healing to be done. You know, this is like a lifelong process for us. There's so much healing to be done. Yeah, no, it is like when I look back on everything that I've been through and stuff, I'm proud of myself that I survived all that. You know, and I think sometimes we do have to acknowledge like, and not in like a self-pity kind of way, but just like I've survived a lot. Life has been hard. I made life really hard. And then there's that too. There's that piece of like, oh, well, I created all of this. I chose to do drugs. I chose to fall in love with these men. It, yeah. Like it doesn't matter. Let's look at your upbringing. The first 15 fucking years of your life, 18 years of your life, you were severely yeah. impacted. So yes, you did those things. You made, made those choices, but your brain was wired in a certain way. Like in many respects, we are a hostage to our trauma. Yeah. And then these coping skills, that we use, whether they're good or bad, they no. do not develop in isolation. You know, this is a, an accumulation of all of the data that I received and the lens that I processed it through and my response. Survival mechanisms that at one point in time worked for us. Like we had to survive as kids through yeah. these survival mechanisms. But then what happens is then in adulthood, not only do they stop working, they start harming you. Yeah, I saw a quote the other day on Facebook and it said, trauma decontextualized over time looks mm -hmm. like personality traits. Mm -hmm. And yeah, when, when you contextualize it, it's like, Oh, Lucy's crazy. You know what I mean? But no, when, when you have the context, um, it's, it's trauma. Yeah. When I say I'm an adult child, there is no shame in that. When I say that, you know, I am somebody who, yeah. you know, went through some shit and made it to the other side and it has made made me into a person with depth who can experience like a life of you know fulfillment and meaning and it's given me the ability to empathize yeah. with other people and just experience life in such a deeper way and so i i say it as a like a badge of honor that shaped me into the person i am today and i yeah and i like the person that i am today i wouldn't change anything yeah i mean getting my master's in counseling has been such a gift because I'm essentially getting like credit in school to heal. And I get to share all of this in class, you know, and my professors find me incredibly interesting. And so, yeah, like I'm going to make a life of meaning out of all of this. And one of the ways I do that is with my music and me and Blake, we, we write together, we record together, we put out music videos and, um, it's funny because all I used to write about was emotionally unavailable men. And now we just write love songs all the time. Emotionally unavailable to codependency. <laughs> that was our first album. That was of course it was. How ironic. Um, Nothing tops the um, prostitute heroin addict, though. 
writing plays for kids. Children's musical, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I'm going to make a life of meaning out of this. Um, I, I still grieve heroin, you know, um, but something I learned is that grief is a luxury because I was so sick. Whatever happened to my nervous system, I was so sick. The greatest tragedy of my life could have struck and I wouldn't have had the luxury of grieving it or feeling it because my physical situation was so bad. So now when I feel grief and I feel uncomfortable emotions, I try to remember that it's a privilege that I am healthy enough of mind and body that I get to feel it and process it. So that's one of my little words of wisdom. You have um, a message that, you know, that needs to be heard and, but also with the heroin too. I mean, that shit's no fucking joke, you know? It's um, it's really hard for people it's to incredibly powerful. I'm I'm so grateful that I never got into it or meth because it's just like a whole different ball game. You know, it is like such a much more powerful addiction. Yeah, it's it's incredible the love affair that I had, and there was a lot of grief. You know, there was a lot of anger. I felt like it wasn't fair. I mean, you, I'm shocked that um, you never have never OD'd or you've never had something laced with fentanyl. I mean, people are dying left and right. It's in every. Yeah, it's weird to me that it never happened. Yeah, shout out to my drug dealer. <laughs> Thanks for keeping it real. Who does it throw in the show notes if you want to make sure that you're getting heroin? <laughs> he has like a stamp of approval. No fentanyl. He tests. He tests everything beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm excited. I want to work in the addiction field because I feel like the way that we're, we treat addiction, I feel like we're failing people, you know, because obviously it's not working. If you look at the relapse rate when people get out of treatment and like I spend all my time in treatment, like they're like, let's name our coping skills. Like, what do we do when we want to do heroin? And then we're like, take a bubble bath or like listen to music. And we like write them all on the board, you know, go for a walk. And it's like, no, like if I want to do heroin, Taking a bubble bath is not going to make that feeling go away. And I feel like it invalidates the power of the disease when we try to trivialize it like that and say like, oh, just go take a walk, call your friend, you know? And the bottom line is my fear keeps me sober. It's my fear of the consequences and it's my love for myself and for my life. And I don't have the answer to how to treat addiction and codependency too. They tell you to do all this like DBT stuff you know, and I don't know. I just feel like people deserve better. So I don't know what the answer is yet, but I really want to work in the addiction field. I mean, you need to be working with girls who were once in the same shoes that you were. I mean, that is where I really think that you um, are meant to be of service. Really? Oh, that sounds intense. Well, think about how many people make get out of that. Yeah alive. Yeah. And you don't, I mean, it's not like something that people are talking about all the time. I, I'm looking for meaning. I'm looking for purpose and, um, I'm looking to, you know, form a narrative that may, that makes everything that I went through make sense, you know, and everything that I've ever been through in life, I can look back and point to it and go, I know why this happened. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I know that this won't be any different, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm excited for my master's degree and, and I really want to do music like, like how I had sober studios, you know, uh, my, my mate built a beautiful recording studio in our house. 
and very professional. He's getting his uh, bachelor's in music production right now. And I'd love to like have a private practice and have some sort of like therapy studios where like Mm -hmm. families who come in for family therapy or couples therapy can come in and write music and record as like part of the process because they built so much self-esteem too. And it's, and to come out of something, this creative process and go, oh, I had this painful experience and look what we created out of it and to have something tangible. So I would, I would love to use music and recording in the recording studio in some sort of private practice. That would be amazing. Yeah. There's a, there's a couple recovery like programs or like nonprofits that are music based. <clears throat> yeah. I think Scott Storch has like a rehab, a, a treatment center in LA that is music based. What does Blake do? Um, he is um, getting his bachelor's degree. He's, he's um, tribal. So he gets like per capita and his, and his tribe is essentially paying him to go to school. Um, wow. So, yeah. So I would love to interview him or somebody else that he knows. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure he'd love to. And, and he knows lots of people in recovery, you know, in indigenous communities too, um, that are, that are really interesting. What, what does he have? A, does he have a pretty juicy backstory? Yeah. Yeah. Blake's incredibly interesting and he's been through a lot and he has, you know, addiction just so deeply ingrained in his family narrative. Interestingly, a huge history of type one diabetes. He lost his dad and his brother to type one diabetes and type one diabetes is very rare. You know, type type two, 90% of the diabetic population is type two. So it's funny. Like when my, when I'm like loading my insulin pump, he'll be like, Oh, I love how insulin smells. It reminds me of my brother. <laughs> or do you want to give him a per- like, make him a cologne? Yeah, like, what if insulin you- make- smells disgusting too. Yeah, let's make him a Christmas next Christmas. Let's make him a um. Oh, what do they call like all oh, the all oh, the insulin? <laughs> yeah, oh, the- <laughs> let's bottle that shit up. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think anyone would buy it, but Blake, but <laughs> you never know. There's some sick fucking people out there. Um, well, this has been amazing. So where do you want people to find you or follow you? Yeah. YouTube is Blake and Lucy music. We write a lot of music about our addiction. Um, our video Narcan just dropped pretty recently. So Blake and Lucy music on Instagram and also on YouTube. Um, yeah, we have some gigs coming up that I always post on Instagram locally. If anybody lives like in Seattle, I have one in Kent. We have one in Kent coming up. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you reached out to me. Um, I, I don't really like share my story, especially going so far back, you know, that we did. Um, but it's interesting to finally get to tell it from a perspective of, of more healing. Usually mm-hmm. when I'm telling it, I'm still in it in some sense, you know. Well, thank you so much. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. Thanks again for Lucy. We're all rooting for Lucy. Um, we're rooting for Lucy to have her her Dr. Drew moment, as she said. Um, check out the show notes for all of her shit. Check out her YouTube channel in there. It, it's highly, it's highly entertaining. What else? I guess that is about it. I need to finish packing. 
leaving in the morning. I get anxiety about leaving my cat. I'm sure that some of y'all can relate, uh, but got to go see grandma. Um, So yes, I will see you guys next week for another amazing episode. Or actually, I will see you on Saturday for Shit Show Saturday. And it's going to be super raw. It's going to be super venerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a giddy about us. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.